Hello and welcome to the Redefine Instruction webcast series, where we bring a fresh perspective on learning and development with every single episode. Go ahead, grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and enjoy a few moments talking about LND with me. Hi, my name is Sandia Lachenbal and I am your host for this series. Subscribe to our webcast or look out for new episodes on YouTube. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or log on to redefineinstruction.com for the latest trends on L&D. In this episode, the spotlight is on Bridget Brown. Bridget has worked for three different Fortune 500 companies, including Monsanto and a small beer company called Anheuser-Busch. She has trained at the Allen Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University, is a former adjunct instructor in the School of Engineering and Applied Science at Washington University in St. Louis, where she taught public speaking and has coached three TEDx talks. She combines her background as an actress and writer with over 18 years as a corporate trainer by using elements of improvisation, and storytelling, making her workshops a lot of fun. She has a master's degree from Binghamton University, which also happens to be where she grew up. In 2017, Bridget turned her side gig into a full-time company. Story Matters LLC is a clarity company which specializes in teaching unconscious bias, interpersonal communication, storytelling, and public speaking. We provide communications, training which focuses on coaching powerful stories which create organizational connection and uncovering the hidden stories we all have in our head which fosters bias and disconnection and as a master facilitator Bridget's workshops are always a lot of fun. In this episode, Bridget not only uncovers how to design stories for learning and development, but also sheds light on storytelling for leadership messages. Listen to uncover the many scenarios in which storytelling can prime your audience for learning. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Bridget Brown. Bridget, thank you for joining me for this episode of Redefine Instruction. I'm so excited to have you and to talk about storytelling. Well, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Yes. Um, Bridget, I know you have, you've been established with storytelling and story matters for a while. Um, storytelling tends to be a very narrow perspective in, in L&D. But before we get into the weeds and the exciting stuff to talk about storytelling, can you share your journey into instructional design? Like what, what brought you into designing? And then what intrigued you in terms of storytelling to step into that as a niche? So what brought me in was I had to keep a roof over my head. So my background is in theater. Okay. I have a master's degree in directing and I was in New York city and I had trained with Bill Esper, widely considered to be one of the best acting teachers in the country to have, you know, he's trained a lot of Oscar. I always used to tell my acting students He's trained a lot of Oscar winners, Tony winners, and me. Um, and uh, so I was trying to make it in the business and to keep a roof over my head, I started uh, doing legal secretary work when I was a temp. And I used to get sent out on the jobs where the other temp screwed up mm, or where no one could figure out 
the software, because this was back in the days when there wasn't just Microsoft Word. There was Word, there was WordPerfect, there was something called Wang. For those of you who are over the age of like 45, you may recall that. And I just had this knack for figuring it out. I don't, I can't tell you how or why, since I tend to be more of a right brain person. Um, but needless to say, typing legal documents didn't thrill me. Mm-hmm. It kept a roof over my head, but it didn't thrill me. And um, I remember so distinctly, uh, Sandia, talking to this woman. She was a fellow secretary. And I said, you know what I would like to do? I would like to train people in how to do this software. And she said, oh, you'll never get into that. You'll never be able to do that. Don't even bother trying. And I was really offended. And then I took a full-time job and the law firm that I was working at decided to bite the bullet because they needed to get new computers onto the desks of every, uh, every person in the firm. And they decided to bite the bullet and teach people how to use Microsoft Word. And I was asked to help work with the consultants and the consultants could see that I had a knack for describing things because I've always had a bit of an, of an ability to take something that is really super complex and uh, find a way to boil it down so that it is consumable. And um, so I was doing training and then I found a woman, I met a woman from that consulting company who was a trainer and she would write instructional manuals for how to's. And I thought, I think I can do that. And so it was this evolution into writing instructional manuals. And then I got hired at a small software company And I went in for the job and I had been struggling to find a job because I moved to a new part of the country and nobody knew me. And I waved an instructional manual in the, in the interview and said, by the way, when you get your software together, you're going to need somebody who can do this. Right. And from there, this was the early days of, um, something we now call Captivate, which at the time was not owned by Adobe, but it was a program called RoboDemo. And I taught myself how to use RoboDemo and my how-to videos appeared on the likes of of, um, websites like Comcast and Cox and Charter Cable. That was what the software company was producing software. That was who the software company was producing software for. So the, the, that is a long answer to the question, uh, which the short answer is I fell into it. Right, right. I right. into it. I figured out that because I wasn't afraid to stand up in front of people, because I wasn't afraid to, um, to tell a story, because I wasn't afraid to, uh, you know, find my way around software that I could teach other people. And that led to me, and I always had good writing skills. So, right. right. What a wonderful uh, story. And Bridget, I want to throw in there that I did a season on uh, professionals who are looking to transition. And this is a great attestation to the fact that you do not need to go and get 
20k degrees or masters or bachelors in instructional design you can actually train yourself if you have the creativity as in your case you brought the the research the you were intrigued you were you were perseverant enough to follow your dream and keep at it despite the negative comment of someone who said you can't do it right so you practically trained yourself and that is such a great um, at a station to someone who's now looking to transition. And a lot of people are in that boat where they have that basic degree and they're not looking to go spend a lot of money. Right. So um, any word of advice for those who are now looking to transition, what resources are out there? I, I, I definitely want to jump into storytelling, but would love to hear from mm-hmm. your perspective. What are some of the resources that people can touch, lay their hands on um, when they're looking to transition into instructional design or e-learning? So the number one um, quality that you have to have is curiosity. So if you've been teaching in an academic setting, which I've also done uh, as well, I taught on the college level, Um, the number one thing that you have to have is curiosity because the resources out there are unlimited. You and I know that there is a group of great freelance professionals out there who will share any information that uh, they need. Um, Articulate, which is a software that uh, I think now probably the bulk of most e-learning designers use is a great, not only do they have how-tos in the software, but they also have really great resources for how to create great e-learning design. Uh, What is great e-learning design? Um, So there are lots of resources out there. And I would would say that the one, aside from learning the how-tos of a piece of software, the other piece that you, if you are transitioning, will need to investigate is how to do graphic design. And it doesn't have to be the most complex graphic design. I still use PowerPoint to design a lot of things, right? If I need something super complex, I'll send it off to a a graphic designer. But you need to know the principles of graphic design and what looks good, what is white space, why is white space there? Those types of things are the things that are going to help you to transition. But I would say to the person who's transitioning, trust yourself. If you've been teaching for a long time, you know how to teach. Just be aware of the fact that in any given period of time, you could go from compliance training to training about uh, dental hygienists to training for um, veterinarians, to training for safety professionals. That's been my year this year. Okay. Those are the training modules that I have done on the e-learning space. And then on top of that, I've been doing my, you know, communications training and unconscious bias training. So it's one of the things I love about what I do is that Any given day, I'm learning something new or I'm having to really stretch my brain to comprehend something that I have no idea what it is so that I can push it back to someone else. Right, right. Teach it back. Right. 
um, a great perspective, and I want to throw in there, there's tons of conferences that L&D uh, professionals are part of, such as, you know, awesome. you have been a guest speaker at se several conferences. So if people want to hear um, information that is put out by experts such as you, they can go to these conferences and a lot of them are huge. They have huge support. So, you know, you can go leverage based on where your learning gaps are. You can go leverage those sessions in those conferences. Um, so yes, the, com the community is really, really supportive, which yeah. is, which is the best part of being in, in learning and development. Yes, so, it is. Um, so, I want to start with the real basics of storytelling. Um, define from your perspective, what is storytelling? Because a lot of people think of storytelling as scenario-based learning, and I know that it's much bigger than that. So what is storytelling? Well, at its basic, most basic level, it is how we communicate in our heads. You and I were talking before we came on the air today about the fact that I had just uh, done a, a communicating with confidence session for a bunch of 12 to 17 year olds. And one of the things that I said to them, I had them close their eyes and I said, I want you to think of a negative thought you have about yourself. And then I said, now I want you to ask yourself, what if it's just a story? What if it's not actually true? So from the time that we can have cognitive thought, and, and I would almost say, and, and a, I'm sure a brain scientist may disagree with me, but I would almost say even before that, we have a story that's going on in our heads, right? That the, the small child who sees their parent and the parent walks out of the room and they cry, the story in their head is she's never coming back. Mm -hmm. And she just went around the corner. So at its basic, at its most basic, it is how we think. It is how we see the world. And I called my company Story Matters because I not only teach storytelling, public speaking, yada, 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 yada but I also coach people and how to think differently about their lives, their circumstances, their jobs, et cetera. How do you change that story? Because I know it's been powerful for me to think of it that way. Mm -hmm. um, when you are doing storytelling for instructional design, I have been doing this for so long that I, I only storyboard if somebody needs me to storyboard. Like if I'm working on a team situation where I have storyboarding and I need to pass it off to a developer, I will storyboard. Mm -hmm. But because I can track story in my head, right? I don't necessarily storyboard. But you have to remember that to your question about scenario versus other things, you can tell many stories within compliance training, right? You can take a policy where the policy says, these are all the things you can and cannot do. And you can create examples 
or metaphors that are mini stories without doing big scenarios. In essence, though, let's say you didn't do that and you just took the policy and you laid it out in a module, you will have a sense because you've been doing, you've been in academia or you've been doing instructional design for a while, where the pieces fit. What does the person need to know first? What does that they what do they need to know second? It's like a jigsaw puzzle. If they don't know this first, then then part three doesn't make any sense, right? And that, in essence, is linear storytelling. There is a, a colleague. His name is Ken Adams, and Ken comes from the world of improv. And Ken has a um, a way of putting story together that is really sort of simple. And it goes like this. Once upon a time, because the best stories always start out once upon a time, even compliance stories. Right. Once upon a time and every day, but one day, and because of that, and because of that, and because of that, until finally, ever since then, and the moral of the story is. Now, in e-learning, in uh, virtual learning, whatever kind of learning we are designing, there's always a moral to the story, especially if it's cybersecurity training, which I did a lot of, especially if it's compliance training, which I've done a lot of. There's always a moral to the story. You know, don't click on it. Mm-hmm. I always joke that I got out of cybersecurity training because I ran out of ways to say, don't click on that. <laughs> um, but you can see by that structure of once upon a time and every day, but one day and because of that and because of that and because of that, there's a build, right? right. I have to know this. I have to know what the stasis is first mm-hmm. before I can then add to it and add to it and add to it and add to it. Right. So that's a that's one way of thinking about it that if you take something dry and kind of boring mm-hmm. uh, like a compliance document and you look at what is that because we always in instructional design ask the last question, right? What's the moral? Right. What do we need people to walk away and be able to do? What behavior do we need to change? Right. Right. The objectives. Could I- the objective. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then once we know that, then we can start at the beginning and say, okay, I'm going to trust in me. I'm going to get you to this point where you're ready to make that change. But I got to give you a little bit of a why first. I've got to give you a little bit of a because, right? right. I have to explain what, I have to explain why, I have to explain because. Right. And those can be sort of substituted in, in once upon a time, we had a bunch of people who were talking too much about our stock and every day that happened. And one day we needed to put out a policy. So we created this insider trading policy And because of that, we need you to comply in this way. And because of that, we need you to be aware. If you don't, you could get in trouble. And because of that, we need you to make sure you sign your whatever, whatever. And and finally, here's the signature. And now go off, do work, 
and don't do that again. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Uh, this is great because you, you went right into my next question, which was about planning and designing and writing a story that resonates, right? The, the, the sort of the ingredients and the components behind the recipe. Um, I'm, I've always been intrigued by uh, the characters that people put in their story. Uh, some people are really strategic about the characters that they design for their story. And I, I want to know your process. So do you use real life personas or are your characters inspired off of somebody who you have heard about seen um and then you kind of modeled the character of the story on that just want to know how do you decide which character would work with this story that's a great question and i'm gonna give you a very muddled answer sadly um it's because the answer is yes to all of the above okay uh, so let me break that down just a little bit. So I um, I referred very briefly to insider trading in that little scenario that I gave. And at my last corporate job, I designed an insider trading module where I did use some scenarios and I just kind of created characters. And in some cases, the characters for this new business that was a fledgling business that was about to go public did the right thing and didn't say anything. And in some cases, they did the wrong thing. And then what I did, because it was really important to the attorney who was um, asking me who I was helping on this project, that people understand one of the takeaways is they could literally go to jail if they shared the wrong information. So I created the scenarios and then I thought, oh, uh, Storyline has this great drag and drop thing. And so I created a little um, exercise where you would have to drag the person who who shared the wrong information into the insider trader jail. Mm -hmm. So that was a way of telling the moral of the story, right? Getting the moral of the story across. Now, I didn't really... Uh, I didn't, I didn't flesh out the characters in a way that we cared so much about them. I just had the characters behave, behave properly, behave badly, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Another scenario is I designed a course about fraud. And in that particular case, I did a lot of research into insurance fraud. And how people, various stories about how people got away with different things. There are insane stories out there about people who murdered other people just to get it. Like we see that on TV and we think it's not real. It's real. Oh, interesting. So I used those real stories to try to teach the lesson of, you know, because it was for insurance adjusters had a or insurance uh, claims people um, and underwriters. In a recent module that I did, I created, it was for dental hygienists. And I created a hygienist who was your friendly, I'm just like you, but I've been doing this for a little while. So let me give you a few suggestions Mm -hmm. type person. 
And once again, that wasn't necessarily based on anybody. It was maybe based a little bit on our uh, subject matter expert uh, because she would share with like her best practices that she had found over 10 or 15 years of, of being a practicing hygienist. So there are all different sources, all different ways that you can find inspiration when you are doing any kind of scenario-based training. But the, the bulk of it or the, the gist of it is, is, is we go back to that outcome. What behavior do you want them to change? What's the moral of the story? Okay, let's tell the story that helps to get to that point, Right. So let's, so the, the characters then become useful tools, so to speak, Wow! Uh, because they're helping you get there. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Um, so I, I want to dive a little bit deeper into the structure of your story, because you mentioned mm-hmm. several different types of structures, um, you know, so if I'm thinking I, I'm a big fan of um, you know, law and order SUV, you know, all of these mystery um, detective episodes that you get to see on Netflix and Hulu. And a lot of times, you know, there are different structures that they use to capture the viewer's attention. Some of it is chronological. Some of it is in retrospective. So, mm-hmm. you know, they start with 36 hours ago, three hours ago. So mm-hmm. I'm curious, how, first of all, the structures that you mentioned, how do you match the structure with the story? How do you know that this is the structure that's going to resonate with the audience about this story or this message that I'm trying to deliver? Well, let's take it out of the instructional design realm for just a second. The the key to any structure has to do with your, what's known as your hero, your protagonist, your main character, right? And um, there's a well-known um, screenwriting teacher who always used to say, you want to think of it as the protagonist gets into trouble and out of trouble, into trouble and out of trouble. Okay. So it's a forward and a back. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Indiana Jones, he's in the temple, he's got the thing and he's relieved. And then he walks out and he finds all these uh, natives who are about to shoot him. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And he finally gets in, he runs and he's running and running and running and he ha ah, gets in the plane. He's out of trouble. What's in the plane snakes. What does he hate the most snakes? Okay. Into trouble, out of trouble, into trouble, out of trouble. Mm-hmm. Now, Another way to describe that is, and this is, this is more pertinent to the instructional design realm, is what is, what could be. What is, what could be. This is a structure created by a woman named Nancy Duarte in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. And it's a great structure for presentations and speeches. Here's what is. The economy is really great right now. However, here's what could be. It could be better if, okay? If you look at Martin Luther King's speech, I have a dream, Right. okay? 
That's what could be. And you, and in any of these cases, you can mix it up. So it doesn't have to be what is, what could be. It can be what could be, what is, what is, what is, what is, what could be, what could be, what could be, right? It can go in any order. The same is true of the story spine that I mentioned earlier. Uh, You don't have to start with once upon a time and every day. You could start, like you said, here's where we were three days ago, right? You could start closer to the climax and then go backwards. But in order to do any of those things, you have to understand the basic structure that there has to be a before, this is what life was every day. Mm-hmm. In classic storytelling, there's a thing called the inciting incident. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's the but one day. Right. So the inciting incident, it could be argued in Raiders of the Lost Ark. I try to bring in movies that most people have seen, although I'm getting to the point where there's a whole crop of people who've never even seen Raiders of the Lost Ark out there. <laughs> Um, the, it could be argued that the inciting incident is when he gets uh, sent after the Holy Grail. It could also be argued that it's a little later when he walks into the bar and he sees his ex in the bar, right? Mm-hmm. But there's a stasis. This is what he does. And then something happens that changes the course of his life. That's why, to go back to your first question, Sandia, Mm -hmm. that's why storytelling, we love it so much because it's like our lives. Because at any point, you can stop and think of a situation in your life where there was a stasis, where you were going along every day and every day and every day, but one day, boom. Right. I got in a car accident, I got sick. I met her on a plane. I got lost my job. I got a new job, right? Those milestones. Those milestones. That's why it's so much like life. Right. Um, So I'm sorry that I'm picking the components of storytelling apart, but. No, that's what uh, we want to do. Yes, yes. Because here's the thing. I often say to, to people that I, when I teach storytelling is we know a good story People who don't, who aren't as passionate about it as I am, we know a good story when we hear it. Right. We know right. a bad story when we hear it, but we don't necessarily know what what the difference is. What makes one bad and what makes one exactly, good. exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, and and my point is, bottom line, you know, yes, we all we've all heard stories as kids, but there's so much more that goes into designing a story, whether it be a leadership message or instructional design, than just making it up as we go. Because that's mm-hmm. what we did, right? When, when you tell a story to a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old, you're kind of making it up as you go. Yeah. And, that, and it might fall flat and it might not, but it doesn't matter because there's no, there's no, there's, there's no consequence out there. But in an L&D situation or leadership, we are trying to deliver a message, the moral, the bottom line, right? Right. So one of the things that, you know, with the, with the attention span of people these days and with so much information being bombarded at us, one of the things that, that most good storytellers do is the hook, to hook you into the story right away within the first couple seconds. What are some of the good practices in terms of how to hook 
some the audience into the story and then make it memorable from there on? Um, well, this is a challenge in learning design when your topic is dry. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm not going to lie. Right? That's true. It can be a challenge. Um, you know, I, I'm working on a project right now in the safety realm. And my, my subject matter expert is an OSHA safety expert. And we make sure to tell the stories of people who fell into ditches, who got electrocuted, the really sad, awful stories, Mm -hmm. because we want that moral to to be there. Um, Before I get to this part, I want to back up for just a little bit, if you'll allow me. One of the things that Nancy Duarte says when she talks about storytelling for presentations, and I think that this is really key for learning development people to keep in mind, is that when you're designing your story, it's not about taking an Indiana Jones character and getting them through, how do they make it through the compliance training, right? Mm -hmm. You have to remember that your hero is actually the audience that's reading this. The audience that's taking it, the audience that's doing the activity. You constantly have to think about what are they getting out of it? What's in it for them? It's the with them. Right. Okay. What's in it for them? What's in it for them? Um, so that's a side note. In, uh, but here's how you make stories stick. The book that I recommend highly for this is Made to Stick by Dan and Chip Heath. Uh, My colleague, Christy Tucker, and I talk about this book quite frequently. So the Heath brothers did, the reason that I bring it out is because the Heath brothers did a great job of breaking down what makes a story memorable. And the first is that it has to be simple. What do we mean by that? It doesn't have to be dumbed down, Mm -hmm. right? So You have to know, first of all, who is your audience? If you are creating a cybersecurity training module for the vast number of people who are not cybersecurity professionals, please don't talk about the DMZ and sockets, okay? They don't need to know that. I often tell the story of, um, I was doing some technical writing with a Um, a company and working with a server designer. And I was trying to explain the software process. And I sat with him and he put up this big diagram of his server. And he said, so the information goes in there and it goes here and then it goes here and then it goes here and then it goes here. And then it's an input output process. Right. (laughs) And I said, got it. So they put the information here and it comes out there. He goes, no, that's not what I said. It goes in here and then it goes there 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 and then it goes there. Interesting. So he knew the story of the server because he designed it. Uh-huh. But the person using the software on the outside needed to know they put information over here and it came out here. Mm-hmm. And when I pointed them out that they didn't need to know the middle, he looked at it and he thought about it for a minute and he went, Oh my gosh, you're right. 
Right? I need to know that because I designed the thing. Right. Right. But they don't need to know that to use the thing. And that's what we mean about simple. Mm-hmm. You can tell stories very quickly if you right. keep them simple. Correct. Uh, the next is unexpected. And unexpected is anything that you just didn't see coming, right? There is the story of the TED Talk that Bill Bill Gates gave where he was talking about, do you know this one? No, I don't. Where he was talking about eradicating malaria Mm. and explaining how mosquitoes carry malaria. And he took a jar and he opened the jar and he said, um, by the way, I just released a bunch of mosquitoes into the audience. Oh, wow. (laughs) Right? Because what an expected does is it, it, it pulls you in, right? It makes you sit up in your chair. Right. That's what people like about horror stories. Mm-hmm. And people like what people like about romantic comedies is the opposite. It's the happy ending. <laughs> that you know the happy ending is coming. Right. And so that's why you love it. And when I'm... When I see a curve in a story that I didn't see coming, Mm -hmm. you will literally hear me say to no one, I did not see that one coming. Mm -hmm. And I'm so satisfied if it made sense. The next is concrete. So concrete um, is the description of the gray of the walls, the gray of the day as I walked into the building to see the person for the very last time, right? You're literally painting a picture so that the audience can see it in their mind. The next is credible. Credible is where data comes in. And this is a really important piece for for learning designers because oftentimes we have to show data. Data does tell a story. That's right. Here's the problem. And I mentioned earlier about if you decide you're, you're shifting your, your, um, your career and you're going into e-learning, get to know some graphic design. The problem is that when people put data up, especially if they're putting it up on a screen, and it doesn't matter if the screen is in front of an auditorium or if it's on a Zoom call. Only show the data you need. Mm -hmm. If you're trying to show the first three quarters of this year, don't show me every week of this year, right? Just show me the first three quarters. That's the problem. People throw all the data up on the screen. Data tells a story. The other thing that makes things credible is um, people from academia, someone who wrote a book, right? I'm your credible source today. Um, the next is emotion. So anytime, as I mentioned before, the module that I'm working on, and we we do mention, you know, tragic circumstances, that's another way of pulling people in. And then the last thing that the Heath brothers talk about is story itself. Just the fact of telling a story will always make it more memorable. So if you can use any of these tactics, now of those, the ones that work the best for learning design are interestingly, I believe, unexpected, 
credible mm -hmm. and emotion. Yes. Yes, I, I agree with you. And that last one is used and overused a repeated number of times, the emotion perspective. Um, I'm, I'm so glad that you said about throwing all the data up there because so many of us <laughs> don't think, and, and particularly as a new designer, it's something so easy to fall into where you're putting up so much information on a slide, on a, on a projector that it, becomes cognitive overload. And so to, that is the good practice of how much is pertinent data. And then when you said every week, uh, the sales performance of every week versus the three quarters as a chunk, chunking it so it's digestible, right? Yeah. That's, that's the reason why our phone numbers are 10 digits and no more, because that's what we can hold on to. That's your yeah. cognitive load and it's chunked into three, three, four, because that's how your brain functions. Right. Um, so well said. Thank you. Um, Thank you. I, I'm going to shift gears a little bit over here. Um, you know, the same story can be presented to multiple audiences, right? So for example, you could be presenting the same story as a leadership message where a leader or CEO is talking to their employees and it's sent out as an e-blast versus you're taking a section of the audience, whether it be the sales uh, people that you're pitching to or the end user, which is the customer, right? So talk to me about a, a little bit about how can you take the same story and, and present it in three different formats to three different audiences? Like how do you shift gears between sales, a leadership message, and maybe the end user or the customer? Okay, so that's all about the, that's all about the moral. That's all about the WIFM. Okay, okay. It has to do directly, I think, between WIFM and simple. Okay. So let me give you an example. Uh, so I used to teach public speaking and storytelling at Washington University in St. Louis for engineers. These were cybersecurity engineers, data scientists, project managers, uh, highly technical people. And um, one of the first pieces of homework I had them do was I had them watch a TED talk from a and I will not mention his name, but a neuroscientist mm -hmm. who had done a, this, a TED talk and he delivered the same talk about how the left brain and the right brain communicate with one another. He delivered that to a TED audience and it was the same talk he delivered to his neuroscientist colleagues mm -hmm. and his students. Now let's think about that for a second. Did you go to medical school, Sandia? No, I did not. Mm -mm. I forgot to go too. <laughs> yeah, the speak is very different. The language right. is very different. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I, and I was in the audience the day he gave that talk, and my I thought my brain was going to explode about six minutes in. Mm. Wow. So that's one of the first examples that I give them, mm -hmm. and I come back. And I say, we come back into class and I say, what do you remember? And here are graduate level students. There are, this is an adult learning program. They work for companies like Boeing, Monsanto. Like these are not, they're in a top flight school. They can't remember hardly anything that right. he said. 
Then I go at, and I have them go off and watch a different TED talk about the same thing, mm-hmm. how the left and right brain communicate with one another. Only this one is from, it's one of the most popular TED talks ever from Jill Bolte Taylor. Mm-hmm. It's based on when she had a, and she is also a neuroscientist and it's based on when she had a stroke. And how her left brain died and she had to think only with her right brain. And they come back into class and they say, I say, what did you remember? And they're like, oh my goodness. I remember the part where she did this and she did this. And then she brought a brain out on stage. And all of those things that we just talked about, about making the story stick. Mm -hmm. And that's the key. The language she used for for that audience, for that TED audience, mm-hmm. was not neuroscientist based. She told the story of her experience. She put it into medical context and she used words that were consumable. He took what was absolutely positively valid for a neuroscientist audience. Mm-hmm but he forgot to make it into language, turn it into language, turn it into what was consumable for a general audience. You have a smart audience who shows up to TED events, right? Mm -hmm. But they're not necessarily neuroscientists. Maybe they're lawyers or accountants or teachers or, you know what I mean? Right. So that's part of the key is, is knowing your audience is so valuable. If you are creating an e-learning training for other uh, technical software people, they have a certain basis of learning. They have a certain jargon. One of my favorite uh, lines is check your jargon at the door, Mm. right? Right. Because if if who you need to actually speak to is... um, the example that I gave of the software engineer, right? What do they, what do they actually need to know to be able to do this task? Don't tell them any more that they don't need to know. And as a side note, that tip, if you take away one tip today, don't tell them any more than they absolutely need to know to change the behavior, achieve this task. But let's think about that from a bigger storytelling perspective. Have you ever seen a movie or a television show where the story's going along and then all of a sudden there's this plot point where you think, this feels like it doesn't belong in this movie. Many times. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. I can think of a few running yes. through my head. So you see how. A story has a linear, even when you, no matter how you tell it, Mm -hmm. each piece of the story has to push the narrative forward. Okay. So if I'm teaching something about software and then I put in a policy about human behavior or human resources, that's probably the wrong place to put it. If I'm telling the story about, you know, um, Indiana Jones trying to get the Holy Grail. And I put in this side note of an affair he had several decades ago that has no 
bearing on what's happening right now, mm-hmm. right? It always has to push the narrative forward, whether the thing that you're pushing forward is a character mm-hmm. or information for the sake of your hero being your audience. There has to be a push forward. If, if it doesn't add to the narrative, drop it, cut it. Um, and one more thing I wanted to say about that. This is another side note that has nothing to do with learning design, but a little tidbit that I learned years ago. The, the caveat, the one exception to that is if you're writing comedy. Because in comedy, if you think of something like Monty Python and the Holy Grail, mm-hmm. people can have these side conversations that have nothing to do with the plot, but they better be damned funny. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So true. So true. Uh, you know, that's the one question that intrigues me is that when somebody's building a story, how do you build in transitions, right? So the, one of the key things um, that, you know, the, the key motives behind um, presenting a, an e-learning or, or L&D is, you know, the facts, which are the cut and dry part, um, the, the data, the facts, the, the lessons learned or whatever. How do you strategically position a transition between here's the story and here are the facts, and this is the divider that goes between the two? I don't know that the two things are separate if we're talking about story and facts, because I think you can tell a story with and put the facts in them. Okay. You know, recently, I've done, I've been doing uh, a bunch of narratives where I've written a script that's then become an animated character for, for learning purposes. And in most cases, these are actually compliance trainings where the character says, hi, I'm Susan. We here at this company, we love blah, 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 blah. But there's a few things you need to know. And then they go through like the do's and don'ts of the policy, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. So those things are put in a certain order. To, To be truthful, sometimes in learning design, there's no, well, it goes back to something that you said, which is chunking. You may have something, you, you may have situations that are so disparate, you have to chunk them into different pieces within the e-learning design, right? Mm-hmm. Within that, those chunks, you may have to break things apart in a way that it's, you want to think of it almost like a scene. So here's my scene about where to park. Here's my scene about how to enter the building and get your badge on the first day. Mm-hmm. Here's my scene about where you, who you call to report to your new supervisor. But you notice that I did, that was linear. Mm-hmm. It was a really kind of a, almost a story with that. Right. I have to park right. first before I can walk in the building and find my supervisor. Um, that's how I would think about it. But you and I have seen perfectly acceptable learning design or e-learning modules that have had, you know, now I'm going to just put in a title screen and we're going to transition to this. Right. Sometimes there's no effortless way to do it in e-learning. 
Do you, do you agree with that? Can you give me a better example? Um, I can't think of one, but there are people who, you know, so for example, one of the the TED talks that I was listening to on your website yesterday was talking about the concussions that somebody had had in the military and was trying to report the coordinates um, and accidentally reported the wrong coordinates where the missile struck one of our own um, and, and and how hard and, 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 and I love how the speaker started with that story and then kind of transitioned into the concussion and the medical aspect of that. And, yeah. I, and I thought that the transition was so smooth, right? You, you did, it was seamless from the story right to the medical perspective. And I'm like, you know what? Somebody strategically thought of breaking. Yeah, I know, <laughs> exactly. And that's why the question yeah. behind, you know, well, how was that transition built in? Was that something what that you you thought as this is one chunk this is one chunk and there's the divider in between or what is it just it it comes naturally you just kind of sporadically put you know the the facts the the data in there and and some people are creative about it and and some of us like me have to strategically think about those dividers and and the and the bookends yeah so that so what sandia is referring to is uh david um i helped coach his ted talk for um for uh tedx gateway arch and david is not the neuroscientist i was referring to before by the way mm-hmm. um because i coached him <laughs> but um part of so in that particular situation and that's a great pull out um in that particular situation, David had all of these, he had all of these little stories. Okay. So he had little stories about his colleague interviewing the guys about how, when he interviewed them, he didn't get anywhere about how, what they can and can't see on, um, you know, even since he's done that talk, MRIs have gotten better um, about how he got involved. And it was a matter of taking all of those and putting them in an order that made sense, really. If you understand that concussions are real, because for so many, that was part of the point he was trying to get you to take away. Right. This is real, right? That when, when um, and, and to back up just a little bit for the sake of our audience, David gets his, uh, he's one of the top researchers at Washington University, and he gets his funding from the Army and the NFL. Because those are the two uh, places where, where uh, traumatic brain injury are so important. So true. And so part of what, part of his takeaway, remember, what do you want them to leave with? And this, this is true for learning design as well as for presentations. Because presentations are a cross between um, an energetic, uplifting speech and a lecture. Mm -hmm. And uh, so what he was trying to get across there, of course, was, yeah, this is a real thing that you have to be aware of. And I can prove it because, and then he gives that example of, you know, 
had a concussion, went right back into the field, coordinates wrong, people die. Right. There are consequences when we don't pay attention to traumatic brain. Um, so oftentimes when people are struggling, and I will recommend this as well for learning, uh, for e-learning designers or any kind of design that you're doing, when you're struggling to figure out what the story is, work backwards. Here's where I need them to be at the end. I need them to know X, Y, and Z. Okay, great. What do I need them to do before that? Well, in order to get there, they have to know this. Great. What do I need to know before that? Okay. Well, they need to know this. And you'll be amazed at how quickly the story will come together if you start at the end, if you're struggling. Right. Right. And so elegantly put, you, you're talking about backwards design. In other words, you're working backwards yeah. from your objective. Sorry, I interrupted you. Please go ahead. No, 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 no. That's fine. I was just going to say, but that will also sometimes help you with your transitions because right. you will see, I have to transition from this topic into this topic here in order to get to that ending. Right, right. Um, I do have to, one side note comment about that TED talk from David was, I think, in my opinion, it there was, you humanized a lot of the data that went in there. There was, it was so well, there was a human element to it and it was so well embedded that it was so hard to pick apart, this is the story, this is the message, this is the data, right? It, it just flowed into, and, and it, it was just one complete story in itself. And there was just, just, it became so real when you put the story in there in terms of, this is what concussions can do to a person. They can have right. real life consequences. So just, just a sidebar, I just admired that humanizing component that you had embedded in there and so creatively done. Um, that leads me to one of the questions that there are so many different formats, right? You have video, you have print media, you have brochures, you, you know, stories can be told even with pictures. And then there's the whole AI, VR, gamification perspective, how do you ensure that the medium or the, the, the mode of transportation is going to work for the story that you're trying to deliver? That video is the right one for this story? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, the uh, well-known actor Laurence Olivier used to say that television was a writer's medium Film was a uh, director's medium and acting was, or uh, stage was an actor's medium. And so understanding, again, it goes back to who's the audience, who's consuming and what do they expect when they consume it? You know, you mentioned something earlier about uh, shortened, um, our ability, our shortened ability to pay attention, to focus. Mm -hmm. And I go back and forth. I don't know about you, but I go back and forth on this. I think that that's a yes. And yes, we want to consume our training quicker. Mm -hmm. And yet we'll sit and we'll watch, we'll binge watch Netflix, <laughs> Netflix, right? Yes. yes. Head lasso everyone. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I get to watch a new episode tonight. Um, so it's a yes. And we still have the capability. 
and I would, um, and, and I think the truth of the matter is, is that anything is in, that's engaging people will stick with. That's so it's true. just that sometimes in the L&D world, we, again, we have to put forward, we have to teach stuff that gets dry and we have to come up with ways to try to engage. If it's video, you have to remember that it's a visual, it's a visual medium. Okay. If it's podcasting, you have to remember this is an auditory medium. Anything that you can do to make it more interesting auditorily, that's key. That would be the same with radio. Um, novelists, that thing I was talking about, about moving the story forward, that, that is one form where they get to go off in tangents and have lots of different characters because there's no time constraint. Because when you sit down to watch a movie, you're not, you know, rarely anymore are movies three hours long, right? Usually they Unless want Unless you're to... watching a Bollywood movie. <laughs> Isn't that right? Yeah. <laughs> but here in America, that you know, they're down to 90 minutes to two hours. Well, sometimes, you know what? That's why the story is maybe bad because they needed that extra five minutes and somebody was like, no, leave that. I have, ha- I, I know some of my favorite movies where I've seen like clips of what was taken out. And I was like, oh, that was the one piece that was missing. If you had left that two minutes in, uh, some other things would have made sense. But it, it again goes to who is consuming it and what is it that they expect when they're consuming it. Right. There is a study that showed that in television and film, the, the speed which with which the speed at which things are edited is way quicker than it used to be in the past. And I don't remember, I don't want to cite the actual data, but it's gone down considerably um, as far as what you see on the screen and when that thing changes. And one of the ways that that was proved to be true to me was I was teaching, I used to teach acting to teenagers um, and I was teaching a class on directing. And I had a student who wanted to be a a film director. And she actually went off to Emerson, which is an excellent school for theater and film. And when we, I was showing them how to stage, she kept trying to move the people around, like go there and two seconds later, go there. And two seconds later, go there. And I said, what, what are you doing? And she was like, well, isn't that the way it's done? I said, you're trying to make them into the camera, right? It's the camera's job. <laughs> it's the camera's job. Right. The camera's job is to pick up on who's talking when they're talking. Right. The actor's job, especially on the stage, is to talk. And so that goes to those different kinds of media. Now, we're out of the realm of learning design, but I, any kind of storytelling makes yes. me yes. excited. Yes. me. Yes, so true. Um, one last question. Do you believe in providing feedback? So a lot of like, and, and I'm going back to my initial example of scenario-based. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of feedback that's embedded in, in the story. How do you approach feedback for the learner? How do you embed that in the, in the entire story? I think it's important um, to 
remind them. So if they, if, if you're doing a scenario-based training and they have three branches that you could take them down, for instance, or three choices that they could make, you want to, you want to do what's called a, a callback or a recall, or if they get it, whether they get it correct or they get it incorrect, you remind them of why. Like, remember, this had to be done before you could do that. And so this is why it's incorrect. Or this had to be done before you do that. And that's why you got the answer right. Great job. Right, right. Which is the rationale behind the feedback versus, oh, this is correct. And you leave it at that. Or this is incorrect without the rationale behind it. Right. So well said. Um, I want to, before, this is the last question, before I let you go, because I was so inspired by, um, I'm sorry, say that again. I said I'm loving this. This is yes. It's a, this is this is such a powerful episode. Thank you. Um, you started the conversation with you know the class that you did last evening where you were coaching teenagers for steps, which is striving towards empowered personal success, which is a nonprofit, and they offer classes in STEM, STEAM, and leadership development. Tell me a little bit. On, on what do you, what is it that you do with these teenagers and what inspires you to work with teenagers? Because leadership is more, I mean, I at least think of it as from the corporate sector, but what is it that you, what spark do you see in these teenagers that inspires you to talk to them about leadership and storytelling? Um, well, that's a great question. And, I, and this was a situation where I got asked to do this in like February of last year. Wow. <laughs> and so obviously it got pushed to this year. Right. Um, and in this particular case, we didn't talk too much about storytelling per se, what we were doing for the girls. And just to put this into context for our, our listeners, this is a program here in Southeastern Connecticut where I live. And it's uh, it's all of the things that uh, Sandia just said. And what we worked on was this concept of communicating with confidence so that they could build on their leadership skills. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that I tried to do before I walked in is remember what it was like to be a 14-year-old girl. Yes, there's you a think lot of that- peer pressure. <laughs> a lot yeah. of peer pressure, yes, and confusion. Yes. When you think that most people don't like you. Yeah. Right. I know that feeling. And what you don't know is that the other person who you think doesn't like you thinks that most people don't like them. (laughs) (laughs) They all live in their own bubble. They're all living in their own bubble. Right. And so I use a tool called applied improvisation. So this is my theater background right? uh, with my business background coming together and The way to think of it is this. This is, by the way, just as an FYI, uh, in all the years that I've been doing learning design, this is the most powerful tool that I have found. It is the thing that changes behavior the quickest. And it is a tool. It's not, we're not training people to be actors or comedians. We have enough of those. They're mostly unemployed. And when you see people standing on a stage doing some sort of improv, that's the product. Right. That's that's all the process that they went through and they give a product. What we do is we take those processes and we apply them 
to various types of things. Some of them are how to tell better stories. As I mentioned, my colleague, Ken Adams, is, an, is from the improv world. In this particular case, what we did was we took some of the games from the improv world to show these girls that when your focus is on other people, you get out of your head. And when you're out of your head, you feel a lot less self-conscious and a lot less like people are looking at you. Mm -hmm. That's a key for public speaking, right? Right. But we also did, uh, from a storytelling perspective, is I had the girls stand around in a circle and close their eyes and think of a negative thought they had about themselves. Take a deep breath. And then I said, what if it's just a story you're telling yourself? So powerful. And this is, then this is full circle for us because you asked me at the beginning, where do you know, stories come from? And right. we start by telling ourselves stories. And so we can change the narrative of our life at any given time. By changing that story. Right. So, so powerful. So powerful. Thank um, you. This has been just a powerful episode and a conversation. I learned a ton, Bridget. Okay. I, I, I do want to give the other other people, my audience, the opportunity to learn from you. So I'm going to talk a little bit about story matters. And then I, you know, I will let you go because I've used up a lot of your time. Oh, um, no worries. Yeah. So story matters is is the company that you had. Um, mm-hmm. If people are looking to learn from you, whether that's about leadership, whether that's about storytelling or just design in general, how how can they access the resources that you put out there or how can they reach out to you? Great. Yes. My uh, website is story matters, company, C O M P A N Y.com story matters, company.com. Uh, I am located in Southeastern Connecticut, but I'm willing to travel and I'm really good at teaching on zoom. I teach at least once a week for the state of Connecticut diversity training on zoom Um, so, uh, and I also, if you go to my website, you can also find my portfolio from over the years in my corporate career of various modules that I have designed. And, um, I create learning experiences that you need. So I've had some people who say, do you have like a menu? And I don't because your individual culture is unique, especially if we're talking about interpersonal communication. And so I find out about that and then I I create the learning from there. Um, The topics that we tend to cover at Story Matters outside of the e-learning realm are interpersonal communication, unconscious bias and diversity training, public speaking and um, storytelling itself. Thank you again, Bridget. It has been a lovely conversation. I learned a lot. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me and my listeners today. You are so welcome. I just enjoyed myself so much. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Redefine Instruction webcast series. We welcome feedback. Leave a comment or question on any of our social media pages. We look forward to hearing from you. Until then... Stay tuned for the next episode.